Welcome to this week's episode of the Deconstruction Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Spiker. I would like to acknowledge that I live and work on the unceded territory of the Seok Nation here in the Okanagan. As a trigger warning, we do talk about sensitive issues such as intimate partner violence and sexual abuse against children. In this episode, I got to talk with Chris Wilson, who is an interfaith minister. They are currently completing their second master's degree with this thesis looking into religious trauma and cult indoctrination tactics within the Christian Institute. (sighs) You guys, this episode was so good. As the purpose of this podcast is to explore deconstructing these worldviews and indoctrinations we've gotten throughout our life and figuring out how to live from our truest, wholest self, this was a meaningful podcast for me. Being raised in a really rigid, toxic, fundamentalist environment and spending the last nine years deconstructing the brainwashing that I experienced during those decades has been hard. On top of that, as a psychotherapist, so many of my clients come to me because of religious stress disorder and because of the shame narrative built into them through religious doctrine. On a personal level, I loved having this conversation with Chris and on a professional and academic level, this is an important conversation that we need to continue having. We explored Chris's work within the theology community, how they navigate that with their work in activism, their spiritual understanding coming to head with the patriarchal indoctrination that this this was a tricky episode for me so I really enjoyed listening to their wisdom I tried to not say too much so emotion wasn't jading the conversation and I hope that I get to talk to this individual again because their knowledge on this topic just astounded me I have So many more questions I want to ask and could listen to them talk for many hours more. And as always, thank you for your patience around the technical difficulties of recording via Zoom. Enjoy. Would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit, sharing who you are, your background, the expertise that you're bringing forth right now, like validate yourself? Sure. Um, I am an interfaith minister. And I am currently working on a master's on um, religious trauma, specifically on cult indoctrination tactics uh, in the Christian church. And my undergraduate degree is in sociology. And I did a thesis for my undergraduate on intergenerational transmission of trauma. So I have kind of had a passion for psychology my whole life. Um, I was the weird little autistic kid uh, who had a passion for psychology Mm -hmm. and have studied it since I was seven. And I adore studying the kinds of ways that we we perceive the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, I'm moving into seeking a PhD in psychology because I want to add that to my ministry experience and be able to really help people in profound ways. Yes. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that you knew your passion young and have been pursuing that since you were a kid. That makes me really excited to talk to you because it's just so authentic. Well, thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Yeah. So your thesis sounds very intense and important. I wonder if you can unpack it a little bit or just talk about what your findings have been and why you pursued this. 
Yeah, I honestly, I, I know the knee-jerk reaction is if you say the word cult and religion or cult and Christianity in the same phrase, you're going to automatically, the people are like, well, you're, you're calling my religion invalid. And that's not what I'm here for. Mm. I want people to be able to separate the toxic things that sometimes come from group dynamics from their genuine faith. I don't want to convince anybody to believe or not believe anything. I want them to find what matters for them. And in doing this, one of the things that I've always been passionate about is people finding meaningful spiritual connection. But I was also seeing a lot of harm in communities. I And when I began working with the progressive clergy of TikTok, we have a hashtag that we've been working with. And this is a, a wide variety of different faith groups who are, are finding a progressive ministry on TikTok. Mm. And we started working together. And I noticed how many people are on the ex-evangelical, ex-Mormon, ex-Jehovah's Witness groups. And nobody was taking care of them. Hmm. And they were, they felt abandoned by churches, by religious groups. And to me, that informed my research for my master's thesis to really find out what went wrong. Hmm. Why are so many people telling me these stories, these horror stories of the way that they can't trust God because people have put the abusive image of humankind upon a divine image? Wow. Goosebumps. That feels so powerful. And I think like a lot to unpack there, but first off what you said just about how triggering it is for a lot of people when cult gets associated with Christianity. And I'm in my own like deconstructive phase right now because I did attend a cult and I don't even mean that with any like negative connotation sort of other than just like it's classifiable. Like there's just check marks that cults required to have checked off and they, they match it and there's some positive things and there's some really negative toxic things as well and then leaving that community is so isolating and I love what you just said that you're recognizing this community of people that aren't being taken care of and I think like your thesis sort of implies that they have symptoms like PTSD and that's very real and valid and so I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit, maybe just in the dynamics of what a cult is. So there's like clarification for listeners and then how that manifests in PTD, PTSD like symptoms. Of course. Now, a lot of what we would see in group dynamics of, of toxic kinds of, of environments is my favorite model is called the bite model, B-I-T-E. And it goes into a kind of an how much external control there is in a community. Now, like any kind of red flag list you're going to have, some of them are very mild and by themselves probably wouldn't be that, oh, I need to worry about my community. But in some of them are very severe and them alone would be, okay, this is, you know, this is a maybe go to the police kind of moment almost level. But you know, for most people, they're going to find that religion does obviously have certain elements of control because they want you to behave in certain ways to be more godly, more pure, however they frame that. Um, but we do have to look for how much control. Is it influencing you negatively? And when the level of control is really high, it looks like the same as abusive family dynamics. Mm -hmm. In fact, we use family systems theory about family dynamics in churches and religious groups to talk about the ways that churches can act like dysfunctional families. 
So the same way that you might engage in a with a family who has experienced harm or abuse, you have to look at the religious community the same way. Would you and be able so to give examples of what that looked like? Sorry. Oh, you're fine. Um, an example would be, let's say the same way you might have the problematic uncle who says things that are offensive and everyone kind of goes, oh, well, you know, Bob, Uncle Bob, he does this. And we just kind of acknowledge that he does this, but he makes everybody uncomfortable at Thanksgiving. Well, churches may have an Uncle Bob kind of figure and they may make excuses for that person instead of holding them accountable. Mm -hmm. And so there's when, let's say this figure, this person does something that's truly inappropriate. Sometimes they use religious terminology to gloss over that harm. And they say, well, just forgive him. If you were truly religious enough, you should forgive him. And they focus on the forgiveness of the abuser rather than the accountability of the abuser. Oh, wow. Exactly. That's so good. So good. I know that in like, even my church, some examples of that were like, abusive husbands and the pastor shepherding the wife to just be a little bit more submissive and maybe if she prayed more then the abuse wouldn't be happening and really victim blaming and again like exactly what you're saying it's shifting the blame from any sort of accountability which then can make reformations needed onto well you deserve this almost you need to be more holy and and that is a very toxic form of theology yeah. because instead of holding someone accountable it makes the abused have to accommodate the abuse. Yeah. And that's not healthy for anybody. And this is where, you know, it's been said to me many times that pastors in, in these toxic churches and religious leaders in these toxic kinds of environments often don't tell people what abuse looks like because then people would leave their group. And that's a really hard thing to say as somebody who is a religious leader. Yeah. But the truth is that people who are abusive are attracted to positions of power and control. Yeah. And being given a group of people and being able to say God is behind you is attractive to abusive people. So we have to acknowledge that. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. So I'm wondering for people listening who might be exploring their current church situation and feeling like maybe I'm in a bit of an abusive situation like you've been describing, what are some symptoms you can tell them that they might be able to recognize in themselves that can offer them a little more freedom on how to move forward? I think one of the things that's really important is gaining perspective. Mm. Um, churches that are toxic or people who are abusive, we know like to control information. They like to control your perspective. And while religion is going to say, you know, it's, we are the best option. Any religion will tell you that they're the way to connect to divinity. If that is excluding you from being able to talk to people outside of the faith, if that's excluding from you to be able to talk to other churches, even in the same denomination, if that is limiting your ability to reach out to people who aren't of the same faith, then you might want to reach out because that is a red flag in and of itself that, that, if your religion isn't holding up to the truth, your real, real faith can hold up to truth in the world. Mm -hmm. Real faith can uphold against any kind of temptation or problematic thing. It doesn't tell you that you have to hide yourself. 
in order to do that. And so anyone who is going through this and may be questioning, I would encourage that questioning because God can handle that. Divinity can handle our questions. And even in, in Christian terminology, the Psalms are full of people who question God, who are angry, who yeah. are feeling these things. And God is big enough to handle that. I truly believe that if we can't question, we don't have true faith because then it's blind obedience to somebody else's word and not to God. Yeah, I love that. I know that when I was doing my master's at a seminary like a couple years ago, um, I definitely was pulling up some questions and that was discouraged really fast, which was super sad to me because I'm like, but God is so big and omnipotent. Like, I don't think he's threatened by my questions in any way. So it's healing to hear like a, a pastor say that that's okay. And it's important. And of course, all divinity can withstand that almost human fallibility that's expected. Yeah, it's, and it's hard because we're told not to so often. But the problem is when we are told to have blind obedience, it's very often to the human power. It's very often that it can lead into abuse. Because if we are told not to question, all the person in power has to say is because God told me so. Yeah. And that, that's, I honestly, it's unacceptable to me because I have watched it over and over again, and I've experienced it where people are acting in the name of God, but they're using it as, a, as a, an excuse to not be accountable for their own harm. Yeah, there's that meme going around saying like, I wish I knew growing up that using the Lord's name in vain didn't mean saying, oh my God, but using his name to perpetuate an agenda. And exactly. I really, that's my biggest struggle with Christianity right now is knowing how agenda driven it is. It seems like it's entwined in the core foundation that we want to control. And that method is through fear and shame for the most part, while under this ruse of unconditional love. And even just from like a therapist perspective, teaching children from such a young age with their like beautiful, malleable brains, that unconditional love is obeying this, this man. Otherwise you suffer forever. And that's really damaging view of love that gets brought into adulthood when you're raised in that environment. I agree. And it's, it's hard because if we look at the way theology has changed in America versus the, it doesn't teach the history of Christian thought. Mm. It doesn't teach that most of the fundamentalist politicized evangelical perspectives are only about 150 years old. They're not orthodox. They're not actually things that have been part of Christianity since the beginning, but it teaches it as if it was, as if it's the only truth that has ever been. And this is where we see people who automatically, they see something like somebody says, I'm a progressive clergy person, or I'm a progressive pastor. And they have a knee-jerk response to say, that's an abomination. It's terrible. It's awful. But they have been misled because they haven't been taught the history of, of their own faith. And I, it breaks my heart because it means that people are being deceived by clergy people, that, that people who are called or supposed to be called by God are perpetuating harm and shame and guilt and profound amounts of, of terror 
onto people. This kind of terror management theory of just, you're going to be excluded, you're going to be shunned, you're not going to be able to survive without us. And there's so much trauma there. Even just those last statements you said, you're going to be excluded, you can't survive without us. Like those are key abuse, narcissist, manipulating terms that you will use to isolate your partner from being able to get a perspective on the abuse they're experiencing in a relationship. And so that kind of goes back to what you're saying. Christianity done without integrity and truth is abusive a lot of the times. It is. And, and it's hard because we have to acknowledge the harms are happening. Yes. And it, like people, you know, I, I have extensive abuse history in my own past. And so I speak to this passionately because I have experienced it on an interpersonal level and a spiritual one. And it is difficult to recognize sometimes that you've been abused. It's difficult to acknowledge that that's happened. And then you have to figure out like, what is me versus what's the trauma? What is me? Well, I think Christianity is in that crisis right now. What is Christianity and what is this abusive dominant form that we've been told is the truth? Where is reality? Well, you know, are we taking care of our people? And in, in the Bible, there's many verses that talk about judging the, the, the law of God by the fruit that it bears. Mm, And when we look at things like this extreme purity culture, this extreme polarization, this extreme uh, politicization of single issue items in the church, we come to a place where we have perpetuated shame and guilt and harm and trauma. And even this idea, I call it pet sins. You have these these churches that focus on one or two types of sin. So much so that you're like a person on a diet and you have donuts shops everywhere. You, you can't do anything but compulsively think about what you're not getting to the point where you develop a very unhealthy relationship with this hyper-focused uh, concept of sinning. And that is bad fruit. Yeah. That, is, that is just bad fruit. And if the church is causing that, then the churches have failed to actually teach the message of God. Wow. Cause that's not freedom. <laughs> that sounds like, no, freedom. it's not. <laughs> you point out so many good, good points that I feel really passionately about. You just are further in your journey where I don't hear the anger that I sometimes can lash out on. I'll never forget when I was talking to a counselor one time and I was just like talking about my past and stuff. And she's like, Oh, you were spiritually abused. It's so obvious. And I was just like, Oh my God. I don't know how I missed that giant obvious thing in my life. And then that really started this journey of intentionally deconstructing these damaging doctrines that I had been essentially brainwashed with since I was a kid. And especially on those single focused items that Jesus doesn't talk about. And I mean, we know LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk about it, does not need to be one of the main focuses of the church. It's very distracting and feels just like a political agenda. Mm-hmm. I, and, and that's the thing is like, we, if we look at the Bible as a whole, we have to understand that this is people who are writing to churn with their relationship with God. Hmm. The understanding 
you know, Moses goes up to the mountain and he has to talk God down of destroying the people after he's brought him out of Egypt. And he has to talk God down. He talks God down. And then Moses gets bad and he's like, fine, I'm going to kill him. And then God goes, no, it's let, let, let's calm down. They, they mm-hmm. act in relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, the, he calls her a dog and she argues her point and says, Hey, even the dog get the scraps from the master. Yeah. And Jesus changes his his stance. It's all about relationality and relationship. And yet we have people who will decide that they're going to take one or two verses. And very often they're taking verses from Paul and not from even Jesus. And they decide that they're going to build their entire hateful faith narrative around these verses taken completely out of context. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's terrible, it's terrifying, and it's traumatizing because then you get this idea that they're almost that they're worshiping Paul's, you know, cherry-picked text rather than Jesus Christ, who was friend of the, the tax collector and the prostitute and the, you know, the people, the, the messy masses of humanity. like this almost spiritual shift in 2016 that like my box that I had been trained to keep God in he's like this white male authoritarian figure just shattered the box of Christianity was too small to hold spirituality to hold the divine actual God that isn't anthropomorphized into a human being and then I just felt like there's a lot of us that that left the church at that time. And then it almost felt like the church became like more restrained and had to buckle down because a lot of them were supporting this, this political leader that was spewing hate and anti-Jesus gospel, but then were like using him in the name of Jesus. And I just saw such a cognitive dissonance that was super disturbing and un- like I couldn't not see it. But then I felt like I was being gaslit because I was told that this was just I was making it up and I'm the heretic for leaving the church and all this stuff. And so it was very confusing and disheartening. I I fully agree with you on this perspective. Um, it was a doubling down mm-hmm. in this polarization, this, this all or nothing mentality. And with the amount of trauma the church creates, I don't blame anyone who says they can't cross the threshold of a church ever again. There's a reason I work in interfaith ministry because the most growing spiritual path in America in some uh, studies that they've done has been the spiritual but not religious group. And I am fully, like I've worked in that group and created uh, different interfaith groups since I was a teen because that I left the church myself. I saw the hypocrisy and I, I felt a call, but I didn't, I argued with God. I joke, I argue with God all the time, but being in churches is limiting because they have taken so much about what God is that you're right. They've put God in this tiny little box and they put people in boxes even tinier so much that no matter how good you are, it's never enough. And that creates such pain. Mm-hmm. And we are supposed to be uplifted by our spiritual path. We are supposed to be free You know, even Paul says, all things are permissible, but not all are beneficial. 
Mm. In first Corinthians, he talks about that. And that's not one that people cherry pick that often because they don't want to say that. They want to tell you exactly how to behave. The truth is that we are supposed to be free through Christ. We are supposed to be free, but we are supposed to be radically responsible to our community and that we are supposed to make sure that they are succeeding as well. And it's not supposed to be authoritarian and top-down. It's meant to be liberative for everyone. We all rise together. And we didn't see that. We saw that the politics threw people into a tizzy and made them say that one way was the only right way. Yeah. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about your ministry and how you're trying really hard to not perpetuate the harmful stereotypes of Christianity. So my first experience in seminary was actually doing a MDiv in metaphysics. I went to an interfaith uh, ministry group and I have now gone to Chicago Theological Seminary for my MA in religion. So I've got both the kind of what I jokingly call my my expertise in woo as well as my foundational uh, expertise in, in religion. And for me, my work has always been in those in-between spaces. Mm. And I love, I live for it because to me, I have found people who are more in touch with God after they they broke out of the box, after they discarded the extra things that were hemming them in, that they were able to actually do the kind of work that God called them to do because they stopped being forced into the assumptions of what God was and wasn't. Um, There's a theology that says that we are truly able to be shared with one another when we are broken. Hmm. That the light, that our brokenness is where the light of God can shine into us and make us a lamp for others. And I have found that to be the case in my life. Yes. Or the way that I've made meaning out of all of my trauma and loss has been something that allows me to resonate with the people in these in between spaces. And it's where my calling is. Mm-hmm. It's be that, hey, I've been there hey, it's okay. You don't have to go and do liturgy and be and take communion and do this. And you don't have to check the boxes and be appropriate at all times. And you can make the body joke or say the bad words. And I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to be here with you. And I think there is a profound theology in just being with people Mm -hmm. wherever they're at. Mm-hmm. It's like you live in the mystery of divinity while living from the, the depths of humanity and making those work together in this really beautiful spiritual atmosphere. And even from a psychological perspective, it sounds like you're being present, congruent, and vulnerable with the individuals around you, which Carl Rogers' seven necessary conditions of effective therapy would say that's exactly what people need to heal and grow. Yeah. I mean, we, we far too often receive judgment in churches you know, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And even in any kind of, of healing, the minute we put judgment upon people, they, they stagnate. They can't because they can't wrestle with themselves when the external control is so high. And to heal, you have to be able to wrestle with yourself, with your own perceptions, with your own woundedness and move forward in that in a healthy way. 
Yeah. And then I think that's where also the importance of community comes in, where all trauma heals in connection with people around you. And we neurologically, physiologically, emotionally hardwired to heal and engage with other humans' presence as well to be witnessed in that healing journey. So again, that sounds like you are creating that space for people to access that that healing that needs to be witnessed in a safe space. I try. (laughs) I wonder if you have advice for people who are maybe feeling like they want to start a deconstruction of their, their religion and really test it out, but feel maybe stuck or don't know how or the first steps because it's so scary? I think the first steps, if you're questioning, you've already done the first steps. Yeah. Oh. If, you're, if you're questioning, you've already noticed something. You've already, some sparks, some divine spark inside of you knows that something isn't quite right. I think you should trust it. Because I believe in the divine image of God in every single one of us. I believe that God is truly in every single one of us in this tiny little spot inside of us that can come forth and let us know, hey, hey, something's not quite right here. You're more than this. This is, I'm more than this. And that questioning comes from a place of holiness, in my opinion, that We are called to question the doctrines of humanity. We are called to question those authoritarian things. Jesus calls us into questioning the structures of authority, no matter how loudly they scream. And I believe that through community and finding people, seeking out knowledge, looking uh, to other people uh, outside of the faith or in other churches in the same denomination that maybe you know, you could find support or even outside of the faith entirely, just a a psychologist, a psychiatrist, somebody who can help give you perspective who isn't part of the group. And certainly don't look for a psychologist or psychiatrist who's part of your faith immediately if you're questioning, because many of them will confirm the bias of the faith. And I, as, as much as I hate to say it, I would say also be very careful about seeking counsel from clergy. And the reason why is that many clergy people put themselves as spiritual counselors when they do not have any professional training in counseling. And I am always heartbroken at how many people have told me that their pastor clergy person have said to them that they could get counseling from them. Yeah when they hold no accreditation, no nothing, no training in those things and have done profound harm because of it. Yeah. So any kind of spiritual counseling, I would always recommend go to somebody who is, you know, has, has the correct, correct credentials first. And if then they use spiritually informed care, then by all means, feel free to do that. But seek out somebody who is more objective to help you through those questionings. Yeah. Um, On a note, just to back that up, counseling is not neutral. It's beneficial or really damaging. So I just want to reiterate how important it is to make sure that you're seeking qualified counseling from a qualified therapist. So yeah, I love what you said. Okay. Questioning is not bad. It's actually holy and it will be God speaking to you. 
and then reaching out and breaking that isolation that's just creates this like echo chamber so that you can get a different perspective. That's very helpful. Talk about the male washing of Christianity. That's going to be, that, that's its own topic entirely. Um, we, throughout the history of Christian thought, there have been women theologians. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about the early desert fathers so often, but there were early desert mothers. There um, were apostles who were women. There were, when we talk about even in the gospels, you had uh, Martha and Mary away. This is where we understand that women were there from the beginning, and their ministry may not have looked exactly like that of men, but Jesus tells Martha, calm yourself. It's okay. She is doing what she is called to do, and you are doing what you are called to do. And he reaffirms her place and allows her to have the space to have that anxiety that she was overwhelmed, and that it had nothing to do with Mary. It had everything to do with her needing to rest and find support in her own place. And that's not how a lot of people teach that story. (laughs) No, I was literally going to say I've heard that sermon hundreds of times and I've never heard it explained that way. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I had not heard that taught that way. And when I, the first time I heard it, I was floored. I was like, wait, you mean to tell me that the Greek actually uses the term for ministry? And they're like, yes, they look at it here. And they're showing me the Greek on this. And I, I was like, I will never read this the same way again. Yeah. The, the fact that, that Junia is, uh, you know, Paul mentions her by name, that she was the one reading the letter, that she had been sent, that she was the one teaching. And we're like, when did, why, why did I not learn any of this? Yeah. And, and it has been, it has been this form when Christianity became an institution that it more and more conformed to the social ideals of masculine dominance. And then it became politicized with masculine dominance and it has been perpetuated to create this structural top-down authority in a way that Jesus himself rebelled against. Yes. Sadly, when we take things that are meant to be what we call personal gnosis, your your personal spiritual experiences with divinity, and we take a community's collective gnosis and their understanding, their stories, their experiences, their what's important to them, and we put laws and codes around it, we create a social institution And social institutions aren't bad things. We could actually use more of them in our society that are are meaningful and helpful. They could help, you know, do so much for us. But when we do that with religion, we then lose the meaning because people get obsessed with the law. They're obsessed with the rules. They become very legalistic. And instead of this being a revelation and a means of saying, hey, this is the best way that we learned as a group, and maybe your community is going to be slightly different, but, you know, this is about churning with these relationships, it becomes, no, absolutely, this is about this and that and this and that, and it becomes just regimented to the point where people have lost the actual connection with God Mm -hmm. because of religion. 
people have lost their connection with God because of religion. That is so good. And all those characteristics you're saying, I don't think are inherently bad, but they're very masculine. And that's how I feel like what happened to Christianity was like all the femininity got written out and intentionally left out. And we're left with this legalistic religion instead of this loving relational religion that would benefit with legality of it at times, but really benefit from this feminine spiritual openness, the vulnerability, the connection, the gentle, tender, again, relationalness that comes from femininity. And I think, I think you're right. I think that there's, there's different elements of strength in both. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we deny half of the population Mm -hmm. and the divinity and say that, uh, you know, God is, God is non-binary. Okay. Like in all truth and honesty, God doesn't have a gender. We don't have, you know, God is not embodied in that way in, in the belief forms that I engage with. And so the idea that God is only a man mm-hmm. is just as blasphemous that God is only a woman. Mm-hmm. Although if you say God is a woman, people are going to freak out a lot more often yeah. because we have been told for so long, well, he is neutral, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not when you've demanded that that God be you know, that it's, it's demeaning God to say she. And that is a problem. And we should be able to say, God has created each and every one of us. So God's idea of the universe is far more pluralistic than any of us could possibly conceptualize. God is bigger than any of us can understand because we are creations. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say God is non-binary, I'm going to be I'm going to be yelled at and told I'm a heretic because even though the fact that like God doesn't have a gender, but if I say God is non-binary, it's going to be seen as a political baseline that I'm trying to push an agenda. But if I say God is a she, no, no, God isn't a she. God is a man. Well, how 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 do you say that? Like, why would you say God is a man? Well, because he is used in the Bible. Well, God is called a mother in the Bible. Mm-hmm. God is called a mother. God is called uh, Sophia, which is considered in traditional texts to be the preemptive knowledge and wisdom, the logos that became Jesus Christ, was gendered as feminine. And so Jesus Christ could be considered to be the divine feminine embodied in a masculine human form. Wow. wow. And that is not taught in most of the American Christian Protestant churches either. Nope. Wow. Oh, that's so powerful. I love that. I also just from a psychological perspective, think it's so damaging for boys and girls, or whatever you identify as, but like just traditional masculine and femininity of being ingrained with this idea that God is man, Jesus is man. And then it unconsciously programs you to believe that men are better than women. And I think we see that play out through recent historical context, particularly in the church that's been massive abuse perpetuated on women, not given places of power, not being taken seriously, not given, given the, the mic, you know? I fully agree. And one of the things that we see is that, you know, the women are put into this degraded place and we have to look at the fact that that's even like the purity culture aspect that comes up with this, that it's about controlling women Yet in Matthew, Jesus is quoted as saying that it's better for you to pluck out your own eyes and cut off your own hands if you're the problem that you feel like you need to go violate somebody. Yes. That Jesus calls men into full accountability. Yeah. And this modern purity culture 
pretty much calls men, it degrades men as animalistic, that they cannot control themselves. It degrades men as being no better than an animal because it says they don't have to be accountable to themselves. And that is a toxic narrative for boys. And obviously it's a toxic narrative for anyone of any gender who is perceived as being more feminine. And because that perpetuates this idea that femininity is an insult, that any term that means feminine is an insult. And when we perpetuate that as godly, it doesn't bear good fruit. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could talk about the dangers of purity culture for many hours. It's, As could I. <laughs> oh, it's it's so damaging and it breaks my heart. And as a counselor, I can't tell you how much of the work is rewriting these shame narratives around women's sexuality and their bodies. And it's so funny because you know the world, the like secular world, is this obsessive hypersexualization of girls. Mm -hmm. So is purity culture. And they think that they're the opposite, but no, what they're doing is hypersexualizing girls in such a way that their worth is tied to it and controlled by men. And that is so damaging. And that's not any better than the secular world externally hypersexualizing girls. It's the same, the same root. It is. And it's, it's one of those things because in purity culture, you are interrogated about it. You're asked about it. You're, you're presented with this. Have you done this? Are you doing this? How dare you? And there's so much shame and guilt and, and pain and trauma. And in a lot of ways, it's being of this world. Mm -hmm. because the element of control is that hyperfixation. Like I was talking about earlier, that pet sin towards purity means that there is a, a an absolutism where children are inherently sexualized and that's toxic because then what are we doing well in in popular culture we have people who are children being painted up and being made models and that's what's permitted as being the most appealing thing but in purity culture Girls are being told to have put on purity rings and promise themselves to their fathers as, and that's not any better. Just no, it's not. Not oh. any better, not any different. And it's, it's terrifying to me on the fact that we know that the sexualization of children is one of the main problems that is under addressed in our societies. Yes. Um, even the study, early study of trauma with Freud, which, you know, mm -hmm. the, the whole idea was that he recognized that there was profound amounts of abuse in women who were presenting with this hysteria, yep. but he published and had so much uh, pushback from the local uh, authorities essentially. And, and, that it became that he retracted and spent his whole life demeaning women about professionally. Yep. He says, and okay. it's still a problem. Yep. But he had, like, I think you can see that mirrored in a lot of really rigid religious circles. Exactly. And it's just as toxic because it's this idea of you, can, you must appear pure. Mm -hmm. You must never tell the truth behind the scenes. You must never disclose this because appearing pure is the scenes. You must never disclose this because appearing pure is more important than actually being holy. Yeah, yeah. And then if something happens to you, you have to hold the weight of now not being worthy and embodying shame, essentially, because that's the messages perpetuated on you constantly. 
I know as a survivor. Yeah, I can't, I I can, I I am a survivor of, of abuse in many ways and was as a child. And that, that particular form of toxicity is something that I still struggle with, even with as much knowledge as I have, because you can't just magically undo the amount of shame and pain and harm that happens from that. Well, I commend you on your growing journey. It's beautiful to see where you are and the the life you're creating and the beliefs that you're perpetuating, even though you've gone through immense pain and suffering yourself. I think it adds to the flavor, you know? (laughs) I have a a favorite quote uh, by Kate Rakowski, and it says, nothing ever ends poetically. It ends and we turn it into poetry. Hmm. All that was never once beautiful. It was just read. And that's one of my favorite quotes because it isn't the pain that makes us more. It's our choice as survivors to make ourselves more. And through our spirituality, through our connection to divinity, through our connection of meaning making and storytelling of ourselves, we can become the main character. We can choose to be more than what our past has made of us. And I think that that's the whole point, that we can make that meaning and we can be more And we can decide whether we want to share that story or not. And I think that's the whole thing is that we get the agency to do that. Yes. Oh, that's so hopeful. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I think the biggest thing is recognizing in our culture that we are so used to being manipulated Hmm. with marketing, with various forms of control in our society, that it can be exceedingly jarring to start opening this door Hmm. and realizing how much control there is in the world Hmm. and how much influence other people do have over us. And one of the things that I've seen as people have begun on this journey to be willing to sit with that complexity, Hmm. to, to be willing to sit with the complexity of what is to not automatically slam that door shut and go for simple answers, but also to not harm yourself by running down that rabbit hole too fast. Yeah. To give yourself the space to truly sit with and reach out to other people to help you in that journey. And I think that's the biggest thing for wherever somebody is on that journey to to seek out somebody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a TikTok, if it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, research, whatever your flavor of trying to find information is, there are people and there are, you know, good resources out there to help process those things in a healthy way rather than continually re-traumatizing yourself by by just pushing through. Yeah, that's excellent. It can be, like you just said, re-traumatizing to try to do this on your own in a way that might be too fast or unhealthy. Never mind the, the shame and fear that can come with that as well. Just to add to your point, find someone who's further along in their journey for where you want to be. I really enjoyed this. This has been a really good experience. And I always love hearing other people's, you know, expertise and knowledge in these areas. Mm, Same. Thank you so much. I just am honored that you would spend an hour with me sharing your wisdom. It was beautiful and healing. And I think quite insightful. I would love to talk with you more sometime. (laughs) Yes. 
I am so down. I will chat with you anytime. These are some of my favorite topics. And I think they're so important at this time as we're seeing an almost mass exodus from what traditional religion has offered. And I think that's beautiful. And it's a sign of the times, literally in so many ways. And I think that needs to be the expansive part of spirituality that we're continually pursuing our evolution. I agree. It, it can be such an, a profound thing to realize that God doesn't fit in our boxes, yeah. that God is so much bigger than the limits that we try to put on divinity. And I think that that can be freeing to recognize that, you know, we so often see it that the, the, you shouldn't be of this world, that you should distance yourself from this world. But the truth is God is distanced from this world, but is a massive part of it at all moments through each of us. So we can find God is bigger than these human systems. God is more profound and more loving than we can even imagine. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's something that I hope, if no, if no other message gets through today, I hope people can really find hope and love wherever they're at. Yeah, I love that. Beautiful. Do you have any closing remarks? No, just, um, you know, you can always find me uh, on at, at that Chris Wilson on TikTok, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Those are my main uh, platforms. And I do spiritual direction and uh, coaching right now. So those are things that people can reach out to me for if they'd like. Uh, Beyond that, yeah, just uh, I'm very active on TikTok just for Mm -hmm. as as a uh, content creator and would love people to come on, hang out with me, ask questions, things like that strongly recommend her content it is excellent so thank you so much for having me today i appreciate it there you go oh that moved me so much thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that this has been the deconstruction podcast by me rachel spiker the music at the beginning was citizen by sir sly feet gary clark jr Yes, it was chosen intentionally. The songs during the interlude was State Lines by Novo Amor. Until next time, keep thinking about who you are, my friends. <laughs>